This morning's scripture reading will be coming from Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 13 through 17. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting, the, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything be, be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be follow, followers together of me, and mark them which follow so, as ye, have, as ye have us for an example. I normally get right into the sermon, but a couple of things I need to announce. Uh, as I was putting my phone on the uh, the pew, I noticed Sister Christie had sent me a text, and uh, Brother Wade fell yesterday. He's okay, but he's very sore, so she is home with him. So we need to keep Christie and Wade in our prayers. Also, uh, I received a phone call uh, just a little while back from uh, a contact I have uh, of a young couple who have never shown any interest really in uh, any kind of a Bible study, but now uh, they're showing an interest in a Bible study. And so if you'd keep that in your prayers, I'd appreciate that. Um, this has been going on for since I've been here. And so now they're kind of coming around a little bit. This couple has recently been married. And so uh, uh, in my contact, didn't want me to... Uh, she didn't want me to say anything. I'm not giving out any names. So, uh, but if you would be praying for that, that would be helpful. So hopefully uh, uh, this young couple will uh, uh, agree to this Bible study. And they're getting closer. And so that would be wonderful. And so if you would be praying for that, that would help immensely. The greatest gift the world has ever been given is God's love. Because of His love, He gave His only begotten Son so that the world could live, John 3.16. Jesus loved the world so much that he, gave his love, that he gave His blood on the cross so that sin could be forgiven, Matthew 26.28. Jehovah God offers salvation from sin which would otherwise condemn us, Romans 6.23. Through His plan of salvation... Salvation can only be accessed inside the body of Christ, which is the church, Colossians 1.18. One can only enter into that body, the church, upon full and complete obedience to the commands of the Savior, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9. Faithfulness is required of the follower, Revelation 2.10, and heaven awaits the righteous. With those vital facts before the minds of the world, all people ought to be willing to follow the pattern set forth in the Bible, delivered by Christ, sent from heaven. That pattern is having faith in Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father, Romans 10, 11. 
Repenting of past sins, Acts 8, 22. Turning one's life around and focusing upon God. Being willing to do the things that He's asked us to do. Confessing publicly their belief that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. That He is the Son of God. That He lived upon this earth. That He died the death He did. That He was buried. That He rose again. And that He reigns at the right hand of the Father at this very hour. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And we see that put into literal application in Acts 8, verse 37. Then being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin, which is the like figure or an example of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 3 and 4. We see a a Saul of Tarsus headed down to Damascus to, to arrest men and women, to throw them into jail, persecute them, perhaps to even have them killed, when he meets the Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, on that road. He appears to him and he asks him, he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts chapter 9. He says, go into the city and there it shall be told thee what to do. There are three accounts of that recorded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, we read the account told where Ananias comes to Paul after he had been fasting and praying for three days. He had repented. He showed that penitence through his fasting. He shows that change of attitude through his prayer, wanting to be forgiven because he had met the very man whom he had been persecuting the church that he had established that we read about in Acts chapter 2. He had killed Stephen in Acts chapter 8. And we talked about in class this morning how the very Son of God stood as Stephen looked up into the heavens And he said, I commit my soul to thee as he looked down upon that man as he was being murdered as Saul of Tarsus held the clothes of those men who stoned him to death. And that's who Saul was talking to. What wilt thou have me to do? Go into the city and there you'll find out what you need to do. Ananias went to that man who had been blind for three days, who had been praying, yet he wasn't saved. And he said, Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. How do we call upon the name of the Lord? Through obedience to His message. So Ananias taught him the gospel. We just talked about those things, culminating into being baptized for the remission of sins. Now that's that same message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And then, of course, adding being added to the church wherein all spiritual blessings are. Acts 2, 47, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Following that up by walking in the light as He is in the light. 1 John 1, verse 7. Meaning being faithful to the gospel message throughout life. Living as a Christian ought to live. Seeking the Lord in all things. Matthew 6, 33. Moving on to perfection or maturity. Matthew 6, or Hebrews 6, verse 1. Adding to one's life. Christ-like virtues, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, and striving for the victory in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. You see, Paul wrote to the Philippian brethren the words of admonition that were just read in our presence. Those words of admonition were very relevant to those Christians in the first century. They're just as relevant today in our time and perhaps more today than they have been in some time. 
Because Satan desires each of us. He wants to distract, to discourage, and to defeat every single one of us. And he has ministering servants who are aggressively and militantly working to keep us out of heaven. And that's what his goal is. We've talked about this a lot. Satan wants us all to be in hell with him. Listen, here's the thing. He doesn't care about any of us. He's not going to care about us when we're in hell. He doesn't rule hell. He simply is going to be in hell being punished right along with everyone else who is there. And so we don't need to allow Him to win. If we're going to receive the crown of life, we must be striving, working, endeavoring, maintaining, and remaining faithful all the way to the end. We must press toward the mark. That's the title of the sermon this morning. Press toward the mark. The book of Philippians was a book written or a letter written to those brethren which would point them to the Son of God and which would encourage them to walk closer and closer to Him each day, even when the next day might be a day of discouragement. As we study through the precious pages of uh, this letter, we too can glean the truths that have been laid out for them that Paul sent to them. And I think it can encourage us and help us to walk closer to the Savior each day. I don't think there's a greater example of Christian living, of a Christian pressing toward the high calling, pressing toward the mark of the Christian life than the Apostle Paul. I want us to look at his example this morning. I think we can learn a lot from him. I want us to try to emulate his faithfulness and I want us to notice how he did it. And first, let's look at this. Paul did not dwell upon the past. We see that in verse 13. He did not dwell upon the past because he realized he had not reached perfection spiritually. He said this, he did not count himself to have apprehended, meaning he had not attained. He had not attained that spiritual level of perfection or he had not reached where he thought he ought to have been. He had not gotten to the point spiritually where he needed to be. He had not grown to where he needed to have grown. He was not of that mindset that I have arrived at the plateau where I need to be yet. I've not learned all I need to learn. I've not gotten to where I need to be, where I want to go. He knew he needed to get stronger and stronger and stronger and to grow more and more and more in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And like all Christians, he could grow and he could mature and he could continue to do that. And he recognized that. And I think that is a mark of humility. Paul had committed some regrettable sins in his life. And he viewed himself in that way. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners. I look back on Paul, and that's in 1 Timothy 1.15. I look back on the life of Paul and my heart goes out to him because those are some memories that he just simply could not allow to leave him. He persecuted the church of Christ, and we just talked about some of the ways in which he did that. Paul was a murderer. He destroyed the church, or at least he tried to. He terrorized Christians. He threw them in jail. He hunted them down as if they were animals. And he regretted that, and I'm sure he did until the very last day of his life. And he said because of that and those actions... He said, I'm the chief of sinners. He viewed no one in this world as a greater sinner than he was before he became a Christian. 
He persecuted the church zealously. Zealously. And my heart breaks for him. Now he didn't not forgive himself of that. He did not allow himself to not be forgiven of that. He didn't just stop doing what he knew he needed to do. But he recognized that he did some terrible things to the church that he could not go back and fix. We just talked about Stephen. One of the greatest men that we read about in the New Testament. Preached one of the greatest sermons that we read in the New Testament. And Paul consented to his murder, or Saul of Tarsus, before he became the Apostle Paul. Paul realized that he needed to continue to grow and he did not rely on past victories. He forgot those things that were behind. Now in that instance, I don't think he's talking about the old Saul who was living in sin. I don't think he was talking about the Saul who helped to murder Stephen, the one who was headed to Damascus to arrest men and women. I don't think that's what he was talking about. I don't think he's talking about that old man that he had put to death in baptism and that he came up out of the water to walk in a new life. I don't think he's talking about that. The man that he put to death, that he kept down, that he strove to do that every single day like all Christians are demanded to do. No, I think he's talking about the accomplishments that he made as an apostle in Christ. I don't think he relied upon that. Now don't misunderstand me. He isn't implying that the past holds no value. He isn't implying that we can't profit from it. But what he is saying is I'm not going to rest on those victories in the past. I'm not going to stop doing what I was doing because I can do more. I can continue to work. I can keep on going. The Judaizing teachers that he fought so hard against, you see, they taught something called a plateau religion. They reached that you get to a certain point in life in your religion and that's where you are. And you stop right there. You do this, this, and this, and then you're saved and that's that. Now brethren, that's taught in the, in the religion, uh, religions of today. You do this, this, and this, and you're saved, and it doesn't matter what you do in life, you cannot lose that salvation. You can do anything you want to do, and you cannot lose that salvation. And if you were to lose it, you weren't saved in the first place. Now I want us to go over to the book of Galatians for just a moment, for just a little sidestep, and we're not going to stay there long, but I think this is very important. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Let's begin with verse 1. We're going to notice the first two verses. Now this is the same Paul writing to these brethren. Paul the apostle, not of men, neither by men, but of Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Brethren, that's a very important statement. This letter is written to Christians. Now let's go over to chapter 5 of this same book. Here's the purpose of this letter. There were some people in Galatia. 
Paul was fighting against Judaizing teachers who were encouraging Christians to leave Christ, to go back to an old law, to add to the Christian faith aspects of the old law, such as circumcision. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And so what they were doing, they were uh, diluting Christianity, which was changing it into something else. And you can see that in Galatians chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, talking about changing what was taught into another gospel, which is not the gospel. And so he tells them, he says, let's begin with uh, verse 3. He says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, the old law, you are fallen from grace. If you leave Christ, you fall from grace. You lose your salvation. Okay? And that's exactly what these Judaizing teachers were causing these folks to do. If you teach a plateau religion, that's what happens. And that's what they were teaching. You see, Paul didn't rely upon past victories. He said, I've got to keep growing. I've got to keep going. I have to keep and remain faithful. Paul wasn't the type of Christian to say, look, I've done my part. Look what I've done. I've planted all these churches all over Asia Minor. I'm going to let them step up and do a few things now. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to rely on all the things I've done. And let's let someone else do the work for a while. Paul was not going to do that. Now, why is that? Such an important attitude. Why is it so important to not have that attitude? Because that's a dangerous attitude. That's a dangerous attitude. These people were in a time, or about to go into a time of some persecution. You know what happens when there uh, is some persecution going on? You take a, excuse me, you take a little discouragement. You throw in a little persecution. You give someone an opportunity to quit. Do you know what that person is going to do? You guessed it. He's going to quit. So let's not give them an opportunity to quit because there's going to be, there's going to be some persecution. Okay? There's probably going to be a little discouragement. So let's not give them an opportunity to quit. Okay? No, Paul would press toward the mark. He would grasp the things in front of him. As you study the character of Paul, do you notice how he is a single-minded individual? You notice how he kind of has blinders on in some aspects, and that's good sometimes. He is a single-minded individual. He said, this one thing I do, he had a quest. He had a mission. He believed the child of God should always be growing. There was no time for complacency. There was no time to stop short of heaven. There was always to be reaching for the eternal prize. There was always, they were always to be pressing toward the mark. Which brings us to our second point, his desire. That's found in verses 14 and 15. What an example of a child of God. He led by example. He led by example. He hungered and he thirsted after righteousness. He learned that from the Lord, Matthew 5, verse 6. 
He lived by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. He esteemed the words that came out of God's mouth more than his necessary food, Job 23, verse 12. He was dedicated to pleasing God. He had a compelling desire to reach the resurrection, to receive the reward, and to reside in heaven eternally. Cost was no object to Paul. He would pay whatever it cost. He was willing to do and to go wherever it was necessary or whatever he needed to do to reach the heavenly goal. His whole life was an example of giving up whatever he needed to give up to get it out of his way if it got him to heaven. He hated the doctrines of the false teachers. In his letter, he spoke of how spiritually useless the Judaizing teachers were. How they would cause those who fell prey to their lies the very souls of the innocent. I think we ought to feel the same way about every teaching Satan has endorsed throughout the world. Here's what the psalmist declared. We should hate every false way, Psalm 119. 104. He taught false doctrines. Paul did. He taught they would stunt the growth that he desired for all Christians to have. Because of his great desire for salvation, he led by example. But here's something that, that he also wanted and something that is very important. We can't live off of someone else's desire. We can't do that. He wanted them to learn to have that same desire. The perfect here in verse 15 is a reference to those mature Christians who had been growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about maturity, completeness. That word perfect is often used in the King James Version of the Bible to mean uh, completeness. Okay, So he's talking about complete Christians, mature Christians, He sets forth the heart of the Christian philosophy. That's what he's talking about. And he told them to be thus minded. Be thus minded. Mature Christians should have and ought to have the same mind, right? That's what he told them earlier in the letter, wasn't it? He's teaching the same thing. He's not giving a contradictory message. Philippians 2, 5, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He wanted them and anyone to be happy to to count anything as lost that might stand in between them and salvation. If you have to give it up, give it up. If you have to stop this, stop that. Be happy to do it. Be happy to do it. I read one time, and I don't know if this is true or not. It seemed plausible. A fellow was in a wreck and and he was trapped in his car and his arm was trapped. The car had rolled over on it and his body was out, but his arm was trapped under it. And, and a, a passerby came by and the car was on fire and, and they were afraid the car was going to blow up. And, and so he ran over and he's trying to get the gentleman out from under the car and, and, his, and his arm was trapped right below the elbow. And he couldn't get him out. And it was on fire. And he was either going to burn to death or they were afraid the fire, the car was going to explode. And, and 
So finally the man said, cut my arm off and get me out. It was getting bad. The man said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And he begged and he pleaded and he begged and he pleaded and it was getting bad and the flames were getting closer. And finally, whatever means they had, he cut the man's arm off at the elbow. He rushed him out of the way. He got an ambulance there and they took the man to the hospital. And and it was right at that moment he was about to lose his life and he gave up the arm. He went to the hospital. The man survived. A few weeks later, the hero who saved the man's life was served papers and the man was suing him for cutting his arm off. After he had time to think about it, and the impending death was gone, now he was angry. We need to be able to give up what we need to give up, right? But Paul realized that some people would be otherwise minded, right? They would not hold dear the things that Paul held dear. Paul made the statement here. He said God would reveal that to them. Now Paul was writing during the time of the miraculous. Paul's letter was inspired. That's that's miraculous. It's a revelation. That's miraculous. Revelation, inspiration, those are miracles. But what Paul is not talking about here is some kind of a a Holy Spirit interaction between the folks there and the the Spirit. Paul is revealing to them in his letter. (laughs) That's why he wrote the letter, right? Paul Paul is revealing to them those who would be other-minded, and he's talking about that, and he's explaining to them, right? That's why he wrote it. And so Paul instructed, he encouraged, and he spoke of his great love to those brethren. He spoke of his great desire for him to press toward the mark and and for him wanting them to press toward the mark and and how important that is in times of trying and discouragement. You know, we've got enough of that in the world and we need to continue to press toward the mark and do that same thing. But for that to happen, do you know what Paul had to do? Paul had to be devoted to Christ. That's our third and our final point. We see that in verses 16 in 17 of our passage. He wanted the the Philippian brethren to resolve to do that same thing. Be devoted to Christ. All Christians must walk by the same rule. And that's what Paul is talking about. We can break it down simply. All who are Christians are born the same way. We talked about that process. We see that. That's in the... That's in the gospel plan of salvation. It's written down for us in the New Testament. Through obedience to that one gospel, truly Paul was correct when he made that statement for us recorded in Ephesians 4 verse 5. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Surely he was correct in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. And by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Surely that's, that's the, the Holy Spirit was correct when he said that. What Paul is saying is that we all became Christians in the same way, all who are Christians, by obeying the same and only gospel of Jesus Christ. How many gospels did Christ bring to the world? He brought one. Matthew chapter 16, how many churches did He build? He said, I'll build my church. Surely He was telling the truth. Christians ought to have the same standard because there's only one body 
of New Testament doctrine. And for that reason, Jude demanded to earnestly contend for the faith, Jude 3. The American Standard, I believe, in the New King James says, once for all delivered. And that is the same reason Paul said we were to mind the same thing. And we can do it. If we abide in the Scripture, we will have the same knowledge and values. We will teach and believe the same things. We'll have the proper fellowship that God wants us to have. The false teaching Paul answered in this context is the one where they were teaching Christians they had to be circumcised and to add certain aspects of the old law to the Christian uh, New Testament law, the same that was going on in the letter he wrote to the Galatians. From where did that come? From where did that come? certainly didn't come from heaven. It certainly wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some person came up with that, right? Some person brought that into the New Testament law. Some person added that to the perfect law of liberty. Some person added that to the law of Christ. Some person added that to the New Testament. Paul here is taking that away. He said, no, we don't add something to that. We don't add to it and we don't take from it. We just simply do what God said. That applies to us today. If the religious world would simply follow the teachings of the New Testament, there would be no problems. Paul wanted them to resolve to be like him in their devotion. But he also wanted them to remember the examples of other faithful brethren. He encouraged them to follow him, not as a leader or a faction or a cult or a denomination, but as he followed Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. And he extended that beyond himself. He told them, mark those who live in accordance with the will of God. Mark them so you'll remember them and you'll recognize them. You can trust them, right? It's the same as when he talked about marking these false teachers. Recognize that they're teaching something that's not in accordance with the New Testament. So you don't listen to them. So that you do recognize them. So that you know to stay away from them. Paul taught the same thing everywhere he, te- where, everywhere he preached. And that way people could understand that he taught the same thing. They could trust him. They could follow his example. You recall how Paul chastised the brethren in Corinth in his first letter there? how they had divided themselves and they had denominated themselves and they were calling themselves after men. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, chapter 1. I'm going to call myself after this man and I'm going to call myself after that man. And and some some rightly called themselves after Jesus. And and he said, "We, we don't do that. We don't do that. That's the first, as far as I can tell, and I may be wrong about this, as far as I can tell, that's the first time in the New Testament that we have a denomination spoken of. I'm going to call myself after Paul. I'm going to call myself after Apollos. I'm going to call myself after Cephas. Paul said, that's not what we do. That's not what we do. Now, what he went on to say in chapter 3 is he praised his fellow laborers, and that's a point he's making here. He chastised the brethren there for denominating themselves, for dividing themselves, But then he praised his fellow laborers. He says, you mark those faithful brethren and you follow their example. Notice 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning verse 4. He said, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man I have planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Labor. You see, Paul is a wonderful example of how one can press toward the mark by, by using Paul as an example. We see he didn't dwell on the past. Look, he had great success. He didn't rely upon that success. He did have some things in his past that, that weren't good. Those things weren't good. We have to let those go if we're going to move forward and be successful. But he didn't rely upon the successes. He wanted and desired salvation. That's the most important thing, isn't it? And he was devoted to Christ. He also described the Christian life as one that required putting forth continual effort. There are no shortcuts. He described it as one where we have to be moving toward maturity and faithfulness at all times. He wanted his brethren to know that concentration is required if we're going to press toward the mark. And we must be singularly minded. We learn that we are to mind the things of heaven and not be distracted by Satan. We're to walk by the same rule by which Paul walked and the ones that Jesus taught. We must mark those who are good examples by which to live and we must be consistent in our lives with that which we profess. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, we've talked about how to do that. We've talked about faith and repentance, confession, immersion in water, faithful living. If you've done those things and you feel like you've been unfaithful and you need to come back to Christ, you need to do that in a public way, we can help you with that as well. But let that be known as we stand and as we sing. Who at the door is sad.